Stave three, the second of the three spirits. Awaking in the middle of a prodigiously tough snore and sitting up in bed to get his thoughts together, Scrooge had no occasion to be told that the bell was again upon the stroke of one. He felt that he was restored to consciousness in the right nick of time for the special purpose of holding a conference with the second messenger dispatched to him through Jacob Marley's intervention. But finding that he turned uncomfortably cold when he began to wonder which of his curtains this new spectre would draw back, he put them everyone aside with his own hands and, lying down again, established a sharp lookout all round the bed. For he wished to challenge the spirit on the moment of its appearance and did not wish to be taken by surprise and made nervous. Without venturing for Scrooge too heartily, I don't mind calling on you to believe that he was ready for a good broad field of strange appearances, and that nothing between a baby and a rhinoceros would have astonished him very much. Now, being prepared for almost anything, he was not by any means prepared for nothing, and, consequently, when the bell struck one and no shape appeared, he was taken with a violent fit of trembling. Five minutes... Ten minutes, a quarter of an hour went by, yet nothing came. All this time he lay upon his bed, the very core and centre of a blaze of ruddy light, which streamed upon it when the clock proclaimed the hour, and which, being only light, was more alarming than a dozen ghosts, as he was powerless to make out what it meant. At last, however, he began to think, as you or I would have thought at first, he began to think that the source and secret of this ghostly light might be in the adjoining room, from whence, on further tracing it, it seemed to shine. This idea taking full possession of his mind, he got up softly and shuffled in his slippers to the door. The moment Scrooge's hand was on the lock, a strange voice called him by his name and bade him enter. He obeyed. It was his own room, there was no doubt about that, but it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove, from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe and ivy reflected back the light, as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there, and such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney as that dull petrification of a hearth had never known in Scrooge's time, or Marley's, or for many and many a winter season gone. Heaped up on the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, and seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. In easy state upon this couch, there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch in shape not unlike Plenty's horn, and held it up, high up, to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the door. Come in! Come in and know me better, man! Scrooge entered timidly and hung his head before the spirit. He was not the dogged Scrooge he had been, and though the spirit's eyes were clear and kind, he did not like to meet them. I am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me. Scrooge reverently did so. It was clothed in one simple green robe or mantle bordered with white fur. This garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capacious breast was bare, as if disdaining to be warded or concealed by any artifice. 
Its feet, observable beneath the ample folds of the garment, were also bare, and on its head it wore no other covering than a holly wreath, set here and there with shining icicles. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanour, and its joyful air. Girded round its middle was an antique scabbard, but no sword was in it, and the ancient sheath was eaten up with rust. You have never seen the like of me before. Never. Have never walked forth with the younger members of my family, meaning, for I am very young, my elder brothers born in these later years. I am afraid I have not. Have you had many brothers, Spirit? <laughs> More than 1,800. Tremendous family to provide for. Spirit, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion, and I learned a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. Touch my robe. Scrooge did as he was told, and held it fast. Holly, mistletoe, red berries, ivy, turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, meat, pigs, sausages, oysters, pies, puddings, fruit, and punch, all vanished instantly. So did the room, the fire, the ruddy glow, the hour of night, and they stood in the city streets on Christmas morning, where, for the weather was severe, the people made a rough but brisk and not unpleasant kind of music in scraping the snow from the pavement in front of their dwellings and from the tops of their houses, whence it was mad delight to the boys to see it come plumping down into the road below and splitting into artificial little snowstorms. The house fronts looked black enough and the windows blacker, contrasting with the smooth white sheet of snow upon the roofs and with the dirtier snow upon the ground, which last deposit had been ploughed up in deep furrows by the heavy wheels of carts and wagons, furrows that crossed and recrossed each other hundreds of times where the great streets branched off and made intricate channels hard to trace in the thick yellow mud and icy water. The sky was gloomy, and the shortest streets were choked up with a dingy mist, half thawed, half frozen, whose heavier particles descended in a shower of sooty atoms, as if all the chimneys in Great Britain had, by one consent, caught fire and were blazing away to their dear heart's content. There was nothing very cheerful in the climate or the town, and yet was there an air of cheerfulness abroad that the clearest summer air and brightest summer sun might have endeavoured to diffuse in vain. For the people who were shoveling away on the housetops were jovial and full of glee, calling out to one another from the parapets and now and then exchanging a facetious snowball, better-natured missile far than many a wordy jest, laughing heartily if it went right and not less heartily if it went wrong. The poulterer's shops were still half open and the fruiterers were radiant in their glory. There were great, round, pot-bellied baskets of chestnuts, shaped like the waistcoats of jolly old gentlemen lolling at the doors and tumbling out into the street in their apoplectic opulence. There were pears and apples clustered high in blooming pyramids. There were bunches of grapes made in the shopkeeper's benevolence to dangle from conspicuous hooks. There were Norfolk biffins, squab and swarthy, setting off the yellow of the oranges and lemons, and in the great compactness of their juicy persons, urgently entreating and beseeching to be carried home in paper bags and eaten after dinner. 
The blended scents of tea and coffee were so grateful to the nose. The raisins were so plentiful and rare. The almonds so extremely white. The sticks of cinnamon so long and straight. The other spices so delicious. And the candied fruits were so very caked and spotted with molten sugar. It made the coldest lookers-on feel faint and subsequently bilious. The customers were all so hurried and so eager in the hopeful promise of the day that they tumbled up against each other at the door, crashed their wicker baskets wildly and left their purchases upon the counter and came running back to fetch them and committed hundreds of the like mistakes in the best humour possible. But soon the steeples called good people all to church and chapel and away they came flocking through the streets in their best clothes and with their gayest faces. And at the same time there emerged from scores of by-streets and lanes innumerable other people. The sight of these poor revellers appeared to interest the spirit very much, for he stood with Scrooge beside him in a baker's doorway, and taking off the covers from their dinners as the bearers passed, the spirit sprinkled light upon them from his torch. It was a very uncommon kind of torch, for once or twice, when there were angry words between some dinner carriers who had jostled each other, he shed a few drops of light on them from it, and their good humour was restored directly. For they said it was a shame to quarrel upon Christmas Day. And so it was. God love it, so it was. Is there a peculiar flavour in what you sprinkle from your torch? There is. My own. Would it apply to any kind of dinner on this day? To any kindly given. To a poor one most. Why to a poor one most? Because it needs it most. Scrooge observed a remarkable quality of the ghost, that notwithstanding his gigantic size, he could accommodate himself to any place with ease, and that he stood beneath a low roof quite as gracefully and like a supernatural creature as it was possible he could have done in any lofty hall. And perhaps it was the spirit's kind, generous, hearty nature, and his sympathy with all poor men, that led him straight to Scrooge's clerks. For there he went, and took Scrooge with him, holding to his robe, and on the threshold of the door the spirit smiled, and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with the sprinkling of his torch. Think of that! Bob had but fifteen bob a week himself. He pocketed on Saturdays but fifteen copies of his Christian name, and yet the ghost of Christmas present blessed his four-roomed house. Then uprose Mrs. Cratchit, Bob Cratchit's wife, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, but brave in ribbons, which are cheap and make a goodly show for sixpence. And she laid the cloth, assisted by Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons, while Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes. He rejoiced to find himself so gallantly attired in his monstrous shirt collar, for this was Bob's private property, conferred upon his son and heir in honour of the day. He yearned to show his linen in the fashionable parks. But now, two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the bakers they had smelt the goose and known it for their own. And basking in luxurious thoughts of sage and onion, these young Cratchits danced about the table and exalted Master Peter Cratchit to the skies, while he, not proud, although his collars nearly choked him, blew the fire until the slow potatoes bubbling up knocked loudly at the saucepan lid to be let out and peeled. What has ever got your precious father then, and your brother Diney Tim, and Martha was not as late last Christmas by half an hour? Here's Martha, Here's mother. Bless your heart alive, my dear, how late you are. We did a deal of work to finish up last night, and had to clear away this morning, mother. Well, 
never mind, so long as you are come. Sit ye down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm. God bless you. No, no, there's Martha coming. Hi, Martha, hi! So Martha hid herself, and in came little Bob, the father, with his threadbare clothes darned up and brushed to look seasonable, and Tiny Tim upon his shoulder. Big Christmas, Mother. Alas, for Tiny Tim, he bore a little crutch, and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. Why, where's our Martha? Oh, not coming. Not coming? Not coming upon Christmas Day? Bob said this with a sudden declension in his high spirits, for he had been Tim's blood horse all the way from church and had come home rampant. Surprise, Father! Martha didn't like to see him disappointed, <laughs> if even only in joke. So she came out prematurely from behind the closed door and ran into his arms while the two young graduates hustled Tiny Tim and bore him off into the wash house that he might hear the pudding singing in the copper. And how did Tim behave? As good as gold and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful, sitting by himself so much, and he thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me coming home that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple, and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made the lame beggars walk and the blind men see. Tiny Tim is growing strong and hearty. His active little crutch was heard upon the floor, and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken escorted by his brother and sister. Oh, father, such a goose and such a pudding. The goose is as big as me it is. Then Master Peter and the two ubiquitous young Cratchits went to fetch the goose, with which they soon returned in high procession. Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought a goose the rarest of all birds, a feathered phenomenon, to which a black swan was a matter of course. And in truth, it was something very like it in that house. At last, the dishes were set on and grace was said. It was succeeded by a breathless pause as Mrs. Cratchit prepared to plunge the carving knife in the breast. But when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose all round the board, and even Tiny Tim, excited by the moment, beat on the table with the handle of his knife and feebly cried, Hurrah! There never was such a goose. Bob said he didn't believe there ever was such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavour, size and cheapness were the themes of universal admiration. Eked out by applesauce and mashed potatoes, it was a sufficient dinner for the whole family. Indeed, everyone had had enough, and the youngest Cratchits in particular were steeped in sage and onion to the eyebrows. But now, the plates being changed by Miss Belinda, Mrs Cratchit left the room alone to take the pudding up and bring it in. In half a minute, Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushed but smiling proudly, with the pudding like a speckled cannonball, so hard and firm, blazing in ignited brandy, and bedight with Christmas holly stuck into the top. Oh, a wonderful pudding. I'd regard it as the greatest success achieved since our marriage. Well, the weight of it is off my mind. I would confess, I had had my doubts about the quantity of flour. Everybody had something to say about it, but nobody said or thought it was at all a small pudding for a large family. At last, the dinner was all done, and all the Cratchit family drew round the hearth in what Bob Cratchit called a circle, meaning half a one. And at Bob Cratchit's elbow stood two tumblers, in which Bob served out the hot Christmas punch from the jug on the fire. And Bob served it out with beaming looks, while the chestnuts on the fire sputtered and cracked noisily. A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. God bless us. God bless us, everyone. He sat very close to his father's side upon his little stool. 
Bob held his withered little hand in his, as if he loved the child and wished to keep him by his side, and dreaded that he might be taken from him. Spirit, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat in the poor chimney corner, and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, no, oh no, kind spirit, say that he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race will find him here. What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Scrooge hung his head to hear his own words quoted by the spirit and was overcome with penitence and grief. Man, if man you be in heart, have you discovered what the surplus is and where it is? Will you decide what men shall live, what men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Oh, to hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing on the too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. Scrooge bent before the ghost's rebuke, and trembling cast his eyes upon the ground. But he raised them speedily on hearing his own name. Mr. Scrooge, I'll give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. The founder of the feast, indeed? Well, I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon, and I hope he'd have a good appetite for it. My dear, the children. Christmas Day. It should be Christmas Day, I am sure, on which one drinks to the health of such an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man like Mr. Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. Nobody knows it better than you do, poor fellow. My dear, Christmas Day. I'll drink to his health for your sake and the day's. Not his. Long life to him. A uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. He'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. The children drank the toast after her. It was the first of their proceedings which had no heartiness. Tiny Tim drank it last of all, but he didn't care two pence for it. Scrooge was the ogre of the family. The mention of his name cast a dark shadow on the party, which was not dispelled for a full five minutes. After it had passed away, they were ten times merrier than before, from the mere relief of Scrooge the Baleful being done with. They were not a handsome family. They were not well-dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. Their clothes were scanty, but they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and contented with the time. And when they faded, they looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting. Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. By this time it was getting dark and snowing pretty heavily, and as Scrooge and the spirit went along the streets, the brightness of the roaring fires in kitchens, parlours, and all sorts of rooms was wonderful. Here the flickering of the blaze showed preparations for a cosy dinner, with deep red curtains ready to be drawn to shut out cold and darkness. There all the children of the house were running out into the snow to meet their married sisters, brothers, cousins, uncles, and aunts. Here again were shadows on the window blind of guests assembling, and there a group of handsome girls, all hooded and fur-booted, and all chattering at once, tripping lightly off to some near neighbor's house, where woe upon the single man who saw them enter in a glow. How the ghost exulted, how it bared its breadth of breast and opened its capacious palm, and floated on, outpouring with a generous hand its bright mirth on everything within its reach. 
and now, without a word of warning from the ghost, they stood upon a bleak and desert moor, where monstrous masses of rude stone were cast about, as though it were the burial place of giants. And water spread itself wheresoever it listed, or would have done so but for the frost that held it prisoner. And nothing grew but moss and coarse rank grass. Down in the west the setting sun had left a streak of fiery red, which glared upon the desolation for an instant like a sullen eye, and frowning lower, lower, lower yet, was lost in the thick gloom of darkest night. What place is this? A place where miners live, who labour in the bowels of the earth. But they know me. See. A light shone from the window of a hut, and swiftly they advanced towards it. Passing through the wall of mud and stone, they found a cheerful company assembled round a glowing fire. An old, old man and woman, with their children, and their children's children, and another generation beyond that, all decked out gaily in their holiday attire. The old man was singing them a Christmas song. It had been a very old song when he was a boy, and from time to time they all joined in the chorus. The spirit did not tarry here, but bade Scrooge hold his robe, and passing on above the moor, sped whither? Not to see. To see. To Scrooge's horror, looking back, he saw the last of the land, a frightful range of rocks behind them, and his ears were deafened by the thundering of water as it rolled and roared. Built upon a dismal reef of sunken rocks, on which the waters raged the wild year through, there stood a solitary lighthouse. But even here, two men who watched the light had made a fire, that through the loophole in the thick stone wall shed out a ray of brightness on the awful sea. They wished each other Merry Christmas, and the elder of them, with his face all damaged and scarred with hard weather, as the figurehead of an old ship might be, struck up a sturdy song that was like a gale in itself. Again the ghost sped on, above the black and heaving sea, on, on, until being far away from any shore, they lighted on a ship. They stood beside the helmsman at the wheel, the lookout in the bow, the officers who had the watch, dark, ghostly figures in their several stations. But every man among them hummed a Christmas tune, or had a Christmas thought, or spoke below his breath to his companion of some bygone Christmas day, with homeward hopes belonging to it. Every man on board, waking or sleeping, good or bad, had had a kinder word than on any other day in the year, and had shared to some extent in its festivities, and had remembered those he cared for at a distance, and had known that they delighted to remember him. While listening to the moaning of the wind, and thinking what a solemn thing it was to move on through the lonely darkness over an unknown watery abyss, whose depths were secret as profound as death, it was a great surprise to Scrooge, while thus engaged, to hear a hearty laugh. <laughs> it was a much greater surprise to Scrooge to recognise it as his own nephew's, and to find himself in a bright, dry, gleaming room, with the spirit standing smiling by his side, and looking at that same nephew with approving affability. <laughs> if you should happen by any unlikely chance to know a man more blessed in a laugh than Scrooge's nephew, all I can say is... I should like to know him too. Introduce him to me and I'll cultivate his acquaintance. It is a fair, even-handed, noble adjustment of things that while there is infection in disease and sorrow, there is nothing in the world so irresistibly contagious as laughter and good humour. 
When Scrooge's nephew laughed in this way, holding his sides, rolling his head, and twisting his face into the most extravagant contortions, Scrooge's niece, by marriage, laughed as heartily as he, and their assembled friends, being not a bit behindhand, roared out lustily. <laughs> He said that Christmas was a humbug, as I live. He believed it, too. More shame for him, Fred. Bless those women, they never do anything by halves. They are always in earnest. She was very pretty, exceedingly pretty, with a dimpled, surprised-looking capital face, a ripe little mouth that seemed made to be kissed, as no doubt it was. All kinds of good little dots about her chin that melted into one another when she laughed, and the sunniest pair of eyes you ever saw in any little creature's head. Altogether, she was what you would have called provoking, you know, but satisfactory too. Oh, perfectly satisfactory. He's a comical old fellow, that's the truth and not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offences carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. I am sure he is very rich, Fred. At least you always tell me so. <laughs> what of that, my dear? His wealth is of no use to him. He doesn't do any good with it. He doesn't make himself comfortable with it. He hasn't the satisfaction of thinking <laughs> that he is ever going to benefit us with it. <laughs> I have no patience with him. Oh, but I have. I am sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. But who suffers by his ill whims? Himself, always. Ah, yeah, he takes it into his head to dislike us. And he won't come and dine with us. <laughs> What's the consequence? He doesn't lose much of a dinner. Oh, indeed. I think he loses a very good dinner. Well, I'm very glad to hear it, because I haven't great faith in these young housekeepers. What do you say, Topper? Topper had clearly got his eye upon one of Scrooge's niece's sisters, for he answered that a bachelor was a wretched outcast who had no right to express an opinion on the subject. Whereat Scrooge's niece's sister, the plump one, blushed. <laughs> Do go on, Fred. He never finishes what he begins to say. He is such a ridiculous fellow. <laughs> Scrooge's nephew reveled in another laugh as it was impossible to keep the infection off. His example was unanimously followed. <laughs> I was only going to say that the consequence of his taking a dislike to us and not making merry with us is, as I think that he loses some pleasant moments, which could do him no harm. Indeed, my love. I'm sure he loses pleasanter companions than he can find in his own thoughts, either in his mouldy old office or his dusty chambers. Mm, yeah! <laughs> I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not, for I pity him. He may rail at Christmas till he dies, but I defy him. Surely he can't help thinking better of it if he finds me going there in good temper year after year and saying, Uncle Scrooge, how are you? <laughs> if it only puts him in the vein to leave his poor clerk 50 pounds, that's something. And I think I shook him yesterday. <laughs> it was their turn to laugh now at the notion of his shaking Scrooge, but being thoroughly good-natured, not much caring what they laughed at, so that they laughed at any rate, he encouraged them in their merriment and passed the bottle joyously. After tea, they had some music, for they were a musical family and knew what they were about, especially Topper, who could growl away in the bass like a good one and never swell the large veins in his forehead or get red in the face over it. 
Scrooge's niece played well upon the harp and played a simple little air which had been familiar to the child who fetched Scrooge from the boarding school, as he had been reminded by the ghost of Christmas past. When this strain of music sounded, all the things that the ghost had shown him came upon Scrooge's mind. He softened more and more and thought that if he could have listened to it often, years ago, he might have cultivated a kindness of life for his own happiness and with his own hands without resorting to the means that buried Jacob Marley. But they didn't devote the whole evening to music. After a while, they played at forfeits, for it is good to be children sometimes and never better than at Christmas when its mighty founder was a child himself. Stop! There was first a game at Blind Man's Bluff. Of course there was. And I no more believe Topper was really blind than I believe he had eyes in his boots. My opinion is that it was a dumb thing between him and Scrooge's nephew, and that the ghost of Christmas present knew it. The way he went after that plump sister was an outrage on the credulity of human nature. Knocking down the fire irons, tumbling over the chairs, bumping against the piano, smothering himself among the curtains. Wherever she went, there went he. He always knew where the plump sister was. He wouldn't catch anybody else. If you had fallen up against him, as some of them did on purpose, he would have made a feign of endeavouring to seize you and would instantly have sidled off in the direction of the plump sister. She often cried out that it wasn't fair, and it really was not. But when at last he caught her in a corner, whence there was no escape, then his conduct was the most deplorable. For his pretending not to know her, his pretending that it was necessary to touch her headdress and further to assure himself of her identity by pressing a certain ring upon her finger and a certain chain about her neck was vile, monstrous. No doubt she told him her opinion of it when another blind man being in office, they were so very confidential together behind the curtains. Scrooge's niece was not one of the blind man's bluff party, but was made comfortable with a large chair and a footstool in a snug corner where the ghost and Scrooge were close behind her. But she joined in the forfeits, for she loved her love to admiration with all the letters of the alphabet. Likewise, at the game of how, when and where, Scrooge's niece was very great, and to the secret joy of Scrooge's nephew, beat her sisters hollow, though they were sharp girls too, as Topper could have told you. There might have been twenty people there, young and old, but they all played, and so did Scrooge, for wholly forgetting in the interest he had in what was going on, that his voice made no sound in their ears, he sometimes came out with his guess quite loud, and very often guessed quite right too, for the sharpest needle was not sharper than Scrooge. The ghost was greatly pleased to find him in this mood and looked upon him with such favour that he begged like a boy to be allowed to stay until the guests departed. But this, the spirit said, could not be done. Here is a new game. One half-hour spirit, only one. It was a game called Yes and No, where Scrooge's nephew had to think of something and the rest must find out what, he only answering to their questions yes or no, as the case was. The brisk fire of questioning to which he was exposed elicited from him that he was thinking of an animal, a live animal, rather a disagreeable animal, a a savage animal, an animal that growled and grunted sometimes and talked sometimes and lived in London and walked about the streets and wasn't made a show of and wasn't led by anybody and didn't live in a menagerie and was never killed in a market and was not a horse or an ass or a cow or a bull or a tiger or a dog or a pig or a cat or a bear. At every fresh question that was put to him, this nephew burst into a fresh roar of laughter and was so inexpressibly tickled that he was obliged to get up off the sofa and stamp. 
At last, the plump sister, falling into a similar state, cried out, I have found it out! I know what it is, Fred! I know what it is! What is it? It's your Uncle Scrooge! <laughs> Which it certainly was! Yes! <laughs> Admiration was the universal sentiment, though some objected that the reply to Is it a bear? ought to have been yes, inasmuch as an answer in the negative was sufficient to have diverted their thoughts away from Mr. Scrooge. He has given us plenty of merriment, I am sure, and it would be ungrateful not to drink his health. Here is a glass of mulled wine ready to our hand at the moment. And I say, Uncle Scrooge, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to the old man, whatever he is. <laughs> he wouldn't take it from me, but may he have it nevertheless. Uncle Scrooge. The whole scene passed off in the breath of the last words spoken by his nephew, and Uncle Scrooge and the spirit were again upon their travels. Much they saw, and far they went, and many homes they visited, but always with a happy end. The spirit stood beside sick beds, and they were cheerful, on foreign lands, and they were close at home, by struggling men, and they were patient in their greater hope, by poverty, and it was rich. It was a long night, if it were only a night, but Scrooge had his doubts of this, for while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghost grew older, clearly older. Scrooge had observed this change, but never spoke of it until he noticed that its hair was grey. Our spirit's life so short. My life upon this globe is very brief. It ends tonight. Tonight? Tonight, at midnight. Hark! The time is drawing near. Forgive me if I am not justified in what I ask, but I see something strange and not belonging to yourself, protruding from your skirts. Is it a foot or a claw? It might be a claw, for the flesh there is upon it. Look here. From the foldings of its robe, it brought two children, wretched, abject, frightful, hideous, miserable. They knelt down at its feet and clung upon the outside of its garment. Oh, man, look here. Look, look down here. They were a boy and girl, yellow, meager, ragged, scowling, wolfish, but prostrate too in their humility. Where graceful youth should have filled their features out and touched them with its freshest tints, a stale and shriveled hand like that of age had pinched and twisted them, and pulled them into shreds. Where angels might have sat enthroned, devils lurked and glared out menacing. Scrooge started back, appalled. Having them shown to him in this way, he tried to say they were fine children, but the words choked themselves rather than be parties to a lie of such enormous magnitude. Spirit, are they yours? They are man's, and they cling to me appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance. This girl is want. Beware them both and all of their degree. But most of all, beware this boy. For on his brow I see that written which is doom, unless the writing be erased. Have they no refuge or resource? Are there no prisons? No, no. Are there no workhouses? No. Those who are badly off had better go there. Those who had rather die had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Scrooge looked about for the ghost and saw it not. 
as the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley, and lifting up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. <laughs>